we continue our study on the Gospel of Matthew, and today we look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 to 17. Matthew chapter 9, 1 to 17. This passage has three stories. The first story is about a paralyzed man who is, um, whom Jesus healed. Second story is about the calling of Matthew. And the third story is about Jesus being questioned about fasting. As we read this passage, I want you to take note of this question. What does this say about Jesus? What does, what does this story say about God and about Jesus? So let's look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 to 17. Let us pray. Father, thank you for continually revealing yourself through Jesus in your word. We thank you that even as we reflect on the things that happened, the way Jesus lived his life, the things he said, that we get a glimpse of who you are and we understand your heart so much better. We pray now that as we read your word and we reflect on it, that indeed, Lord, you will place truths about you deep into our hearts, that our lives may reflect how you behave, how you respond to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 to 17. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, what does your teacher eat with, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sin, sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the sinners. I've not come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often? but your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The, skit, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus asked the Pharisees, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Indeed, which is easier, 
Is it easier to say to people, your sins are forgiven, or to say to them, get up and walk? This probably is a very perplexing question. We find it hard to answer. But let's see how simple it is for God to say your sins are forgiven. I'll use some analogies. And in the course of these analogies, of course, they're not perfect analogies. You may find questions about how this analogy fits. But try to follow me. And let's look at sin and how easy or hard it is to forgive sins. There are several levels to sin. The first level, of course, is where one bad act, one offence is done against you. So someone does something bad to you. Now, depending on how serious that act, that offence is, it may be very easy to forgive or it may be very hard to forgive. But eventually, if it's just one act, it is relatively easy to forgive. But let's add to it. Let's say it's not one sin, but it is several sins. It is two sins. It is ten sins. It is 70 times seven times. Now that gets a lot harder. How do you forgive that many sins? And yet Jesus says, well, you've got to forgive. And so obediently you forgive. But let's go to a next level. Suppose that person doesn't sin against you 70 times 70 times, but that person makes sinning a perpetual thing. It is a part of him. And you don't foresee that, well, maybe in the next one year he will change, but you see that for the rest of your life, for the rest of his life, he is going to sin like this again and again and again. And after a while, an apology becomes meaningless for both you and the offender. It's meaningless because what's the use of telling you I'm sorry 200 times? What's the use of saying I'm sorry every day and then the next day he sins again? It's meaningless to you, but to that person who is saying it, no matter how sincere that person is, it becomes futile. Because why why, how can I say I'm sorry today, sin again tomorrow and say I'm sorry, and the fifth year and the tenth year still doing it and saying I'm sorry? There is a sense of despair why should I even bother anymore? Because there's no value in my apology. But let's add one more layer. Let's say that it's more than just that you are conscious not only of his actions and his words, but you're conscious of what he thinks. So even when he cleans up his act and cleans up his language, in his mind, he's still thinking evil thoughts. What if you could read his evil thoughts? What if you could see that, oh, this guy is actually scolding me. This guy is actually wishing the worst for me. He may be sweet to me, but he's actually wishing the worst for me. Now that gets really tough because when you can hear him, you can see his act, and when you can read his mind, it almost becomes unbearable. And it comes to a point where you feel this person will never change. And so there are several things you can do. First is distance yourself from the person at least out of sight, out of mind. At least, even if you can't forgive, you don't think about the offence every day. You don't think about how he hurts you every day. And that's out of your mind. Or if you choose to stay on, whether it's a colleague or a classmate or a spouse or a child, if you choose to stay on, you can resent it every day and say, I've got no choice, I've got to stay. I've got to stay in this job and if my boss is lousy, I've got to stay in this job. I've got no choice at all. But you stay on angrily, resentfully, each day hating that person more and more and seeing no end to it. 
Or you could embrace the person. Forgiveness doesn't simply mean forbearance. Forbearance is like, I shut my eyes, I shut my ears, I shut all my perceptions, all my senses, and don't think about the fella. Just go on with my work. Whatever he does, whatever he thinks, whatever he says, none of my business. That's forbearance, perhaps. Can get through life. But what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is where you embrace that person and say, you are my beloved. I see all these things. I read your mind and I see your evil mind and I see your evil acts and your bad habits and your words. And I still embrace you and I say, I love you. Now, when you think about it, in the eyes of God, compared to forgiveness of sins, saying, get up and walk, is probably child's play. Because to forgive a person, not for what he has done one time, but for who he is, his inability to change his life, his continuing to live like that with maybe some hope, that he will change, but hardly any hope that he will change. Now that's close to impossible. It is far easier for God to say, get up and walk, because he is the creator, than for him to embrace someone who is a habitual sinner, continues to sin and sin and sin, and say, I love you, and embrace him. But that's one part of forgiveness. Let's look at another part of forgiveness. Forgiveness is about a debt. You know, I, I realized that when I was when I, I remember when I was a kid, I would fight with my brother, trade blows. I whack him once, he whacks me back once, I whack him back, he whacks, and then mother comes by and says, Stop. And then I say, But he owes me one. He whacked me ten times, I whack him back nine. He owes me back one. And that's what debt is all about. That we owe the person offended something. But how does forgiveness work then? Forgiveness means that the person who forgives pays the debt. There is always a debt, and it is the person who forgives who pays the debt. Suppose I crashed your car. I banked my car into your car. Repairs came to $5,000. And then you decide to forgive me. I hope so. But you for- decide to forgive me $5,000. Who pays? The workshop's not going not to give it free. You pay. Because when you forgive my debts, when you forgive my sin, you pay for it. You pay that $5,000 to the workshop and you don't get paid. And so for every act of forgiveness, somebody pays. The one who forgives has to pay the debt. And sometimes it's still bearable if it's one time, two times, three times. But when it comes to a habitual offender, Someone who is flawed. Someone who will continually do the wrong thing. Now what, what then should the fate of that person be? If it were good, we'd say condemn it. Lah. I mean, can you imagine a shop, a retail shop, clothing shop that sells clothes where one long sleeve, one short sleeve, collar at the waist, zipper at the back of the shirt. I mean, can you imagine a shop selling that? Of course, any... Diff- any flawed clothes, any flawed product gets thrown away. Suppose the owner says, actually, I love these clothes. Let me keep them all. I mean, this, this shop will become a freak show because he keeps all the flawed sh- shirts. And what happens? The shop closes down because none of it is usable. But think about it when God looks at all of us who are flawed, 
not just one sin, two sins, but a whole life lifetime of sin. And God says, not condemning them, I'm keeping them for myself. God takes the condemnation that was meant for us upon himself because he's embracing he, the holy God, the holy, pure one, holds a flawed, sinful, defiled person. And God takes the condemnation upon himself because he refuses to condemn us, because he keeps saying, but you are still my beloved, because I love you still, and you are a delight to me. And so, when Jesus said to that man who was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven, I wonder how many people there realized how serious that is. That what Jesus was saying to that man is that you are my beloved, you are a delight to me, and I love you and I will never leave you. I will not keep my distance from you. I will always be with you and I will stay with you. And your healing is part of an evidence of my love for you. And when Jesus said to, said to the Pharisees, know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that that authority was not just conferred upon him by God the Father, but the authority was earned, paid for, because Jesus became condemned for us. The prize for forgiveness is not a simple one. The prize of forgiveness is not nothing. The prize of forgiveness was that Jesus gave his life for us. And so when Jesus said to the man, you are forgiven, I have the authority to forgive you, what he meant was, I gave up my life so that you can be embraced and so that you can be close to God. God will not leave you. I wonder what that means, what it meant to that man. Maybe it wasn't just the words, maybe it was in his heart when he realized that he was God's beloved, that he was precious to God. And this is what Jesus says each of us, each of you, that you are God's beloved. God is not forbearing with you. God is not saying, well, let's keep our distance. God is saying that you are a delight to me and I embrace you, I run to you, I hold you because you are forgiven. The second story is about Matthew. So Jesus saw Matthew, a tax collector. Well, what are tax collectors? Think of tax collectors not as our IRS people who are nice and legal. Think of them more like the Along's runner, the one who paints on your door, pay my own money, pay money. The one who colours your door, splashes paint on your door. That's, that's a tax collector. They're paid huge commissions just to collect money for the Roman Empire. They get the work done. They take the money from, from you. A large part of it comes, goes to them. And they're not the nicest people. And so Matthew, Jesus went to and saw Matthew and said, you follow me. And the next thing, he was at Matthew's house and having a party with all the other Along's runners and all the other sinners eating and drinking with them. And then the Pharisees saw this and said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In verse 12, he says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. In this passage, in this story, Jesus declares that sinners are not to be judged and thrown away and condemned, but rather they, are, they need a doctor. They need a doctor to come and heal them. 
And that's revolutionary, really. Because there is a great difference between punishment and judgment and needing a doctor to be healed. The punitive versus the rehabilitative. The punitive versus the restorative. That Jesus doesn't look at you and say, you are so flawed that I cannot have you anymore. But rather, he looks at us with all our flaws and he says, you need a doctor. And it makes a great difference. Imagine prison, hospital. In prison, whenever you don't do something, you cannot whack. More and more punishment. First, you lose, maybe you lose a few days of remission. Maybe your jail sentence gets extended. Maybe you get caned. And maybe if you're really bad, they lock you up, solitary confinement. But every infraction, every sin that you commit is seen as something to punish you with and to tell you, stop all or else punish you more. But in hospital, it's different. If you can't respond to medicine, what does the doctor do? The doctor rushes to you and says, what's wrong with it? Can we do more research to find a cure for you? Can we help you and heal you? Prison is punitive. Hospital is redemptive. And there is a great difference. The great difference is in how we see our lives then. Because when God is punitive, we see God as punitive. Then we are afraid to expose our sins. We are afraid even to look at ourselves because the more I look at myself, the more flawed I see and the more I realise that I deserve condemnation. I deserve to have God throw me out of his kingdom. And I dare not look at myself. I don't want to see how sinful I am. I stop. But if I knew that God is a doctor instead, Initially, I may be too shy to tell the doctor a lot about myself because I'm afraid that he will scold me and say, why you never exercise? Why you sleep so late? Why you eat all the, uh, all the pig fat? And I do, but anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> but I'm afraid the doctor will scold me. But after a while, as I share, tell more details to the doctor, I see that the doctor is sympathetic and the doctor cares for me. He doesn't just judge me for all that I do, but he helps me to find a solution. And then he treats me. And day by day, I find that I'm, get, I'm getting better in different areas. And then I open up, say, hey, wow, thanks for curing my sore throat. Now, uh, doctor, I got pain behind also. And then uh, my eye cannot see properly. And then my ears also cannot see properly. And we go on to tell the doctor all that is wrong with us. Why? Because there's hope. Because the doctor will heal every complaint that I give him. I'm not scared anymore. And that's how it is with God. That when we know that He is the doctor, I can tell God, there are problems with me. I've got huge problems in my life. I no longer hide them from myself or from God. I'm able to say to God, God, really, I'm in real bad shape. Help me. And that's where there is hope. Because when Jesus comes to us as a doctor rather than as a judge, he says, tell me about yourselves and let me heal you. Jesus showed us that God heals sinners, that sinners are sick and sinners need help and they need a doctor. And God comes to heal sinners. And then the third one, the third story is about fasting. John's disciples came and said, in verse 14, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, that's a judgmental statement. It's like saying, you know, the Pharisees, 
John's disciples, all, all of us, we fast. We are pious people. We are religious, spiritual people. We are close to God. You do none of that. What's wrong with your people? You cannot be terribly holy, can you? And that's when Jesus transformed the meaning of fasting and all the other spiritual disciplines. When Jesus took it out of piety and said, this is an expression of grief. This is an expression of grief. Jesus says in verse 15, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. See, the understanding that the Pharisees, the understanding that John's disciples had, and most believers, most Jewish believers had, was that to be a good Jew, to be a religious, good religious person, you have to fast, you have to pray, you have to do all these disciplines. And if you don't, you are not a good person. And Jesus threw them all out and said, there's nothing to do with fasting. When I am with them, there's no reason to fast. But there will come a time when you will grieve so much when I have left you, and that's when you fast. And so fasting became not a pious act, but a response, a religious, emotional, a, a emotional response to grief, to sorrow. Do we still fast? Yes, we do. But we don't fast. We don't fast because it is the pious thing to do. We don't fast because it makes you a good Christian. We fast because we grieve. We grieve over our sin when God convicts us deeply of how flawed we are. And we grieve and we say, God, I can't eat anymore. Clean me, change my life. That's what happened to Saul when he was, when God reached him. And he, on his way, on his way, Damascus Road, when he went to persecute, and Jesus appeared to him and blinded him. And it says for three days, Saul did not eat, did not drink. I don't think he was being pious. I think he was grieving. He was being sorrowful. He realized all that he had done, and for three days, he just couldn't eat, just couldn't drink, and he cried out about his sin in remorse. We fast now, but we fast because we are remorseful of our sins. We fast now because when we look at other people who seem to be distant from God, community, the neighborhood where God seems to be absent, and we fast because it hurts us, because we long for God to be present in these places. We fast because our loved ones still do not know Jesus, do not know how much Jesus loves them, and it grieves us, and we fast for that reason. But fasting is not a pious act. Fasting is an expression of grief. But neither are prayer and Bible reading. You see, I started this podcast because I wanted us to do our quiet time, to do our devotions every day. But to do our devotions every day isn't to make us more pious. This isn't at all. To do our devotions every day is like eating medicine, something that will revive us, something that will give us life, something that will allow us to go to work and know that God is with you and to think of God, and then it will change our lives. That's what we read the Bible for. That's what we pray for, that God will so touch us that we are transformed and we are healed and we are delivered from our sin. And then Jesus concludes, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth in verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth and an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into wine, new wineskins and both are preserved. 
Basically, Jesus says that the old and the new are incompatible. You cannot put new good news into old customs. And when you look at our understanding of forgiveness, we cannot be a judgmental person in a judgmental church when the gospel is about forgiveness, when the gospel is about healing, when the gospel is about calling all sinners to us and saying, let God heal you. Don't let me throw you out by telling you all that's wrong with you. Let me with love and gentleness embrace you so that God can reach out to you and heal your sickness. If we want the good news among us, then we must be a church that embraces that good news too, that news, that new thing, embraces it by realising that God forgives and pays for that price. When he looks at sinners, he embraces them and says, you are my beloved, and he pays the price for them. And Jesus goes to every sinner and welcomes every sinner and he says, let me heal you. Don't let me throw you out. Let me restore you. When Jesus calls us to read his word and to fast, it's not so that you can look more holy, be more holy. The new paradigm is that we want to draw closer to God. What does, what does this paradigm look like? I think it's going to be a hard thing. It's a hard paradigm shift, but let's do it slowly one day at a time, one moment at a time. Perhaps you who are in your, those of you who are in your DSGs to discuss this question, what does new wineskin look like? Let me close with one story. I was, um, my family and I were in uh, Asbury Seminary, uh, which is in Kentucky, USA, from 2002 to 2004. And that was my postgrad, my second study attempt, chance to study theology. My first was local and what was in local was that there were lots of rules. Um, chapel compulsory. Well, they didn't say what punishment you get, but then I got caught in my room once. And it wasn't pleasant. I mean, no punishment, but gonna scolding. And then they look out for you, right? Uh, why are you not at chapel? Why you never attend chapel? You're pretty ungodly when you don't attend chapel. And sometimes you just don't feel like it. But when I went to Asbury, there was a sense of grace, so much grace. Well, first of all, chapel wasn't compulsory, but they were so good, we all wanted to go. No need to force, say no also, we will go. But what really touched me was one day, you see, they had this very bad system arrangement with the bookshop, where all the lecturer's notes were sold by the bookstore. And so in order to attend the classes, we had to pay a lot of money to the bookstore to buy the lecturer's notes. And of course, being Singaporean and being street smart, I had two choices, photostat <laughs> or borrow. I chose a more legal way I borrowed. So my senior, my senior who had finished the course passed me all his notes. So I went to class, well, hang on, don't have to pay, don't have to pay a cent for the notes. And then the lecturer walked in and said, um, I think one of you didn't buy the notes. I've got 12 students, only 11 took, so I've got one spare here. Um, so whoever hasn't bought, would you like to have, take it? And of course, I kept very quiet. Like, I mean. And then after a few seconds, he apologized. He said, I'm very sorry. Uh, that was insensitive of me. Um, 
I'll just leave the notes after class. I'll just leave the notes on the table at the entrance, paid for already. He carried on with his lecture. But that was grace. That was knowing that one of his kids probably did something bad, didn't buy the notes. That was saying, it's paid for, it's okay. I'm not going to catch you. Just help yourself to it. I learned what it meant to be gracious, full of grace. What it meant to see sin and extend grace and kindness. It doesn't mean that we be indulgent. It doesn't mean that we be totally permissive. There are times when we have to say it. But there are times when we don't have to say it because we know that the person already knows. There was a pastor, Neville Tan, who was a well-known pastor who used to be a very notorious gangster. Then he converted. And one of the things he said about preachers was this. Christians always tell us what is wrong. I don't really know, need to know what is wrong. I need to know how to do it right. We need people who lead us the right way, not to tell us that we've gone the wrong way again and again and again. But such is a gracious community, a community that's filled with the grace of God, a community that welcomes sinners, doesn't always drum on their heads, you did it wrong again, but rather to love them and say, you are God's beloved, and God is here to heal and to restore. Let us pray. Father, allow us to know the price at which we are forgiven. Allow us to know that it was no simple thing, it wasn't slip service. It was no easy thing for you to forgive us and to come to embrace us and to say, you are my beloved, you are my child. And Lord, when we look at our sin and our sinfulness, not one sin, not a hundred sins, not a thousand sins, but a lifetime, a personality of sinfulness. Father, thank you for sending your son to pay that price to be condemned in place of me, that we, each of us, may be called your beloved children. Thank you too, Lord, that you offer hope to us, not condemnation, not distance. You do not say, be gone from me, but you say, you, are, you need a doctor. Let me help you. And Father, there's so much sin in us, so much flaws, so many things that are wrong with us. God, we ask, take them one at a time and heal us. Heal us of our sickness of our lives, the sin that infects us. Heal us, Lord, and transform us. And so God, draw us to you. Draw us, cause us to run to you. It's not only where we find forgiveness, but we may find restoration. We may find transformation. We may each day be transformed into your likeness. But Lord, even as we experience this, as, even as we receive your mercy and your healing, cause us to be people who will 
forgive others too and embrace others who hurt us. That we may love despite being hurt. And that we may be part of your healing process, providing grace and love and allowing you to reach out to them. Father, indeed, let us be a community of grace, community redeemed by you and community that extends grace to others. We thank you for your presence among us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.